Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 314, last show of the year. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And we're going to close out with a bang. That's right. If you know me, I love pop culture writers. And this guy, it turns out, is one of my favorites. My guest this week is Brian Raftery. Now, Brian Raftery is a former writer for Wired. He's a freelance writer currently. And the reason I reached out to him is he is the author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, which was one of my favorite reads of the year. Now, I'm not proud to admit this, but let's go ahead and do it anyway. My goal at the beginning of the year was to finish one book per month. The demands of my time are pretty intense. You run your own business, you host your own show, you have two young kids, you read when you can, right? So 12 seems like a fairly modest goal. I remember there were people last year trying to read a book a week I mean, that was during quarantine. I get it. I'm never, ever going to be able to read a book a week until probably I'm retired. And maybe not even at that point. But went for 12, made it to 7. This one was definitely one of my favorites. And Brian does such a phenomenal job of not only talking about the interesting contributing factors that led to the great films of 1999 whether it had to do with new directors, whether it had to do with what the studios were doing, and not just sort of the artistic or the business of movie-making side, but what was happening culturally that was reflected in the movies of 1999, and why in that particular moment were the movies so good? And they were. Just take a second. I've got a link to Brian's website. Click on that, look at the book, and then look at the chapters, and you'll see the movies that were released in 1999. And it's a murderer's row. I could watch every single one of those movies again. If you came over to my house and said, hey, let's watch a movie. You could pick any one of those. I'd be happy with that. That'd be fine. Now, Brian is also responsible for one of my other favorite things. Now, Brian is also responsible for one of my other favorite pop culture things from this year. And it is the podcast Gene and Roger. It's an eight episode series produced on The Ringer, all about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. I grew up, like many of us, I grew up loving Siskel and Ebert. And I mentioned during this episode, during the economic downturn in 2008, 2009, I started devouring Roger Ebert's back catalog online. I just read every review I could because he was so incisive, so smart. And you've heard me quote him on this show a bunch of times. Sometimes I will reference his review of Brokeback Mountain and talk about how a movie's not actually what it's about, but how it's about it. And Brokeback Mountain immediately sort of gets painted as the gay cowboy movie. Which, okay, yes, the overtones of that certainly are undeniable. But what Roger Ebert said is that Brokeback Mountain is a story about an old-fashioned guy who can't follow his heart. Man, who can't identify with that? And the fact that Roger Ebert could bottom line it like that was so brilliant. So, getting to talk to Brian, not only about the movies of 1999, and not only about Siskel and Ebert, but kind of whatever else came up. We were both reading the same book, at the same time we did this, I had just finished Sellout by Dan Ozzie. He's in the middle of reading it. And I go, man, this is one of my people. And so to get to close out the year on a high note like this, what a thrill, what a joy, what a privilege, and what a great way 
to end the episodes of 2021, and I thank you for being there with me. Now, just a couple of housekeeping items. We are coming up on Christmas, on New Year's. There's not going to be a ton of content for me, but there is a special thing that I'm releasing next week. It's something I worked on with Brad Haig of The Real Nerds, and I'll talk more about it next week. But stay tuned for that. It is movie-related. It's all in good fun. It's ridiculous. You're going to love it. Secondly, if you want to get me a Christmas gift, here's the easiest thing to do. If you're listening on iTunes right now, or I suppose Apple Podcasts, if you want to be technical about it, which why would you? Take a second, leave me a rating, and if you have a few more seconds, write a review. That would mean the world to me. While you're there, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come right to you, typically drop on Wednesdays, and this year I've done 40 episodes. Not bad. That's more than three episodes a month. I'll take it. It's my pleasure and my privilege to get to bring the show to you. It only works because you're here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me be a part of your life. And I cannot wait to bring you more going into 2022. So let's close out this year on a high note. Episode 314 features Brian Raftery. He is the author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. He's also the mastermind behind Gene and Roger, the podcast series on The Ringer, all about Siskel and Ebert. He's written so much of the things that I enjoy, and I bring this highly caffeinated, meandering pop culture discussion to you with great pride to close out the year. Episode 314 with Brian Raftery starts right now. I'm honestly like, my kids just got vaccinated two weeks ago, so I've been the main parent for the last 18 months, so I'm actually starting again in like 2022 so i don't have, i have like one or two little things i'm doing but nothing like big to like plug or like i mean i wish i was saying so I, I have things that are going to get greenlit soon everything out here sh- like los angeles shuts down december 1st for the holidays These <laughs> lazy entitled rich fucks like to get a whole <laughs> month off in park city so um so but yeah but that's about it I, i've i've all i did during the pandemic was really gene and roger and a couple other ringer things like i was I had like three hours a day tops and I was exhausted. Dude, I understand my kids when they were home, my wife works as a property manager at a hospital nearby. And so oh, wow. she was up to her ass and I was mostly just working around the margins when I could because I was being yeah. a full time dad. How old are your kids? Uh ten and a half and seven and a half. Okay. So you're ahead of me. Mine are seven and five. Okay. So during during COVID, during the pandemic, they were six and four, which was just a nightmare. Oh, I'm sorry. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. And it's funny, man, because I got to be honest here. Sometimes your brain like is working on a level that you don't always appreciate. And so when I reached out to you, I was so like horned up over this book. Like this book was just <laughs> like something that hit me right where I needed it to hit me. And I didn't. Oh, I didn't, cool. I didn't know that that I needed that. But as I looked into you after we booked this, I go, oh, shit, he's written like so much that I love, like the MST3K oh, oral history. Oh, that was fun, yeah. And and just, like, I went down the list, and as I was looking at it, I go, oh, shit, okay, this guy's been one of my favorite writers for a while. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> um, but, like, here's the thing. This is, like, my favorite type of writing. So, oh, okay. like, pop culture criticism, because I realized at one point I was a business major in college, and I was taking my public speaking class, and I go, I'm really good at this. And I was getting 96s on my speeches. They were all really fun to do. And I looked in the, in the course book and I go, oh my God, you can major in this. And I can like write critical essays about punk rock mm. and pro wrestling and movies. 
And I then that's what I did, and I got my master's degree in uh, in speech communication with an emphasis in media studies. So anytime oh, anyone, cool. yeah, anytime anyone is like <laughs> doing something like this, I go, oh man, that's pure catnip for me. Mm. Uh, this is Brian Raftery, and you are a cultural critic. You're a freelance writer. You're an author. You're a podcaster, and someone that I am thrilled to have on the show, man. So thanks for making some time for me. Absolutely, John. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So. Um, as I read through Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, um, I'm curious about its origins. Uh, was this something that someone approached you about, or was this sort of your brainchild? Give me a little bit of the origin story on this, please. Uh, it was weirdly both. Like, for, I think around 2015, no, 2016, uh, in the fall of 2016, I was kind of thinking about the end of the world. <laughs> I don't know what the fall of 2016 was like, but I was really thinking about... Um, I really was just thinking about like these kind of bleak periods in American history. And I started thinking a lot about Y2K because I just have been always fascinated with it. You know, I'm 46 now. I, you know, so I grew up, you know, in those late nineties with this kind of thing hovering over me that we all make fun of now, but was like legitimately (laughs) kind of weird. And I don't want to say I was scared because like I I spent New Year's Eve, 1999 in Times Square at the MTV studios. And like, if I had been afraid of world ending, (laughs) It would have ended there, I think. Maybe it did, and we just were still waiting to catch up. But maybe so we're in I purgatory. Really, we could be, yeah, yeah. I don't know how. Is that when they inevitably reboot, reboot Lost? We'll all be stuck <laughs> on that weird purgatory thing <laughs> last season. Um, but you know, I was I've been thinking a lot about that year. I that 1999 was the year where I left college. I went to go work my first job at Entertainment Weekly as an intern, and it was my I moved to New York, so it was a big year for me culturally. Yeah. So I started thinking about 99, and I was like, ah, a book about Y2K, and you're like, eh, that's depressing. And then I was yeah. thinking about a book that would take all of these big events of 1999. I was thinking about a book that would do 12, what is like 12 big events of 1999, and they would range from really severe things like Columbine to cultural things like. Britney Spears on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I, so I was thinking about the year a lot. And then out of the blue, um, this editor, Simon and Schuster, Sean Manning, emailed me. I never worked with him. He was like, hey, I know you've written about David Fincher and Mike Judge before. Would you be interested in doing a book about the movies in 1999? And because I'm really smart, I was like, no, no, thank you, Simon and <laughs> Schuster. Here's a Simon Schuster editor who's really cool, basically <laughs> offering me a book. And I'm like, you know, I have this other idea. And, I'll, you know, because I'm stupid. And... um and after a few months, we just kept talking about it. And Sean had a really good point, which is like all the things that I wanted to write about, you know, like Columbine and the explosion of TRL culture and all these things that were interesting, you could do through the lens of the movies of that year. And I loved all the movies of that year and I've written about them. And I saw, I can tell you where I saw half the movies of 1999 in sure. the theater, who, well, I was, me too. who I was with. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very crucial year for me. It's funny you mentioned that because 1999, uh, I turned 18 years old in 1999. And so, like, this movie nerd, sub- actually subscriber to Entertainment Weekly, it's funny that you brought that up, because my friend and I, and it was right about the time Tarantino was on his ascent, that we decided we were movie nerds. Or, didn't decide, I suppose we discovered that we were movie, movie nerds. Mm. And so, I used to look forward to that. I, I'm the kind of guy who would read movie reviews of movies I have no intention of seeing, and I still do that. Sure. And oh, yeah. Like part of what really formed me was Entertainment Weekly and reading like uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum and Owen Gleiberman. And I remember thinking like, this is great stuff. Like the way that they describe things. I'll never forget the description of Nicolas Cage's look in the movie Con Air. And whoever wrote it said he's got kind of a Christ gone Rambo look about him. <laughs> and I thought, man, this is phenomenal. Like I love this. And so. So you turned them down uh, initially doing this book about 1999. When did you start on it in earnest? 
Um, I think we, you know, we started talking about it more and then I, I, you know, I met with him and I was like, wait, you know, I should do this. And I started basically, I think in, oh gosh, when did it come out? It came out in 2019. I think I really started working on it in 2017 or so. Yeah. Early 2017. And the, you know, I didn't want this to be, um, I don't do straight up criticism. I've just never been comfortable. I just don't think I have, a, I'm not someone who can do, I wrote movie reviews like in high school, but I, it was never quite my thing. I like writing, interviewing people. And then the piece that comes out of that sometimes feels like it has, some, like, I feel like sort of exploring my ideas about a movie by talking to people who made it, which is to me is kind of more satisfying. And it's, I'm better. I, I, you know, Owen and Lisa at EW, I could spend 50 years more. I won't get 50 more years, but I could spend 50 years trying to do what they do. And I just can't. It's a very particular talent. Right. Um, and they're great at it. And also Christ on Rambo is one of those things where I'm like, that could have been a Lisa line or an Owen line. I'm trying to, I'm wondering now, like yeah. who that, who wrote that? Cause they both have very distinct, very, really wonderful styles of writing. But anyway, and so the whole thing for me is like, anytime I do a big project like this, whether it's an oral history or a big feature story, you need to get like the one or two big people to say yes. Yeah. And, when you're dealing with people who are very famous and very successful and very busy, once you get once you get one person to say I'll talk to you, it is much easier. So luckily, oh god, yes. As um, a, as a podcaster, once you yeah. have a CV built up a little bit and some credibility, like I had to start with my friends when I started this show, and once you get some actual names, then you can like use those names to go, see, like I'm not full of shit, right? Is that kind of yeah, what you're describing? Yeah, yeah and I mean, and luckily like I got David Fincher to say yes pretty early and Steven Soderbergh and Reese Witherspoon. And some of that was through connections I knew. Some of it was through favors and some of it was just, I'd written about them before. Once you have Steven Soderbergh, Reese Witherspoon and David Fincher saying, yes, I'll talk to this idiot. Um, <laughs> other people will also be like, I should talk to this idiot too. So I was really like, you know, there were a couple, I got, a, I think I did like 125 interviews for the book. Wow. And I did them in like a year and they ranged from like really big filmmakers to people who had like, you know, 12 minutes in Magnolia. I, I really want to talk to, I, w- I would have talked to 125 more people if I'd had more time. I like talking to people who work on every production of a movie. I've often, I've always have wanted to do a book or a story where I pick a movie and I talk to every single person I worked on. That would be my <laughs> dream. Like no one else would read that or care, but like, I just love the way movies are made. It's fascinating to me. Okay. Um, so to that point, it's funny because I'm kind of the same way. And like, there, there are things that I'm obsessive about and I, I like what I'd want to do is, yeah, hear it from every angle. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. My friend Brad and I, who runs the Real Nerds podcast, they watch uh, a movie every single week and they review it. They've been doing this for like more than a decade. It's insane. Mm. But we recorded a commentary track for Karate Kid 3, which mm. is a movie that is so weird tone-wise and so like bad in really strange ways that it's almost become one of those like Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of movies for us. Or like, mm. um, uh, The Room, you know, with Tommy Wiseau. It's, it's a movie like that. And I go, no one will ever listen to this. But the fact that me and my friend get to riff on this movie yeah. and do like MST3K style on it. Yeah. I go, that's enormously satisfying. So you're like, no one would ever want to read that. I think I might. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. I think it's, I, I, there might be an audience for those things where I'm like, well, that would take three years and earn me no money. And it's like, this, <laughs> now that, those are the, those are the calculus you have to go in now with projects where it's like, and it's like, I have a dumb idea. Is it so dumb that it's worth not seeing my kids for a year and a half, year and, a half and not having any money at all? Do you, um, do you have a movie but, in mind for what you'd like to do that one for? I don't. I mean, there's the, the problem is like there are older movies that I'm fascinated with where everyone's dead and there are movies, newer movies where they've already, every story has already been told. I think the problem would be like, you have to find a movie that enough people know to really love and want to read about, but also 
is not so overexposed. Like, because there's so many oral histories and retrospectives and, you know, it's, it's very rare when a book about a single movie does well. It's really, I mean, sure. my friend Melissa Mayers wrote one this year that's fantastic about Daisy Confused. And I was just like, it came out with about six months after that great book about China, about Chinatown. And I was like, it is so rare to get two great single, single topic movie books, like in a year, much less two. I can't believe we got those, but like, they're hard to pull off. They're yeah. really hard because people, you know, are you going to read a 400 page? I mean, the Days of Confused book has done really well and people love it. It's like, because that's a movie that you will spend 12 hours reading about a two hour movie. Yeah. You just love it so much, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard to think of those movies, you know? Yeah, it really is. I mean, finding the, the sweet spot there of tillable earth where you have plenty to talk about and like there, there's, there's interesting elements from every sort of aspect of production. You know, yeah. like, uh, you, you have a chapter in here about office space, which is kind of a fascinating movie in its own right. And I just appeared on a podcast called Did That Age Well? And we talked about office space from a variety of angles. Huh. And office space by and large aged incredibly well, particularly in 2021. And so, you know, you think about people getting, what are we in right now? What's it called? Like the great resignation. Mm. Um, and people are getting, you know, less and less satisfaction from their jobs. So they're leaving. And it's almost like office space kind of foretold that 20 years ago. You think about the matrix. I, I mean, the way that this book and the movies of 1999 keeps circling around in people's consciousness, uh, is interesting. And some of that comes from like mis, willfully misreading the matrix with the r- red pill, blue pill stuff, you know, from, these ass wipes on the alt-right. Mm. But it's interesting. When this came out, it seemed to get good reviews. What have people told you? What is the feedback you've gotten about this book? Uh, I mean, it's been mostly positive. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there on the Internet who think it sucks. I just avoided them, luckily. Um, but, you know, I, I think when people say nice things about the book, I think they're, you know, they're sincere, but I think they're responding to the movies of that year. I think that's, you know, it's like the emotional connection people have to this era of, um, like when these movies came out that were by and far mostly original stories, they were mostly made by people who, by filmmakers like Sofia Coppola or Spike Jones or Fincher or Soderbergh who were being given tremendous freedoms, like yeah. financially, creatively. And you, and, and they also arrived at a time where if you were Gen X or like, it was just a great fucking year to go to the movies. Like, it's like, you know, a friend of mine, uh, when I told him I was doing this book, he was like, oh, I used to have this party trick. I don't know if it was actually a party trick, but it was like where he would ask someone to name every movie from 1999, like as many movies from 1999, and the whole joke was that it just keeps getting better and better because it really <laughs> is like, it's a pretty phenomenal movie year. And I'm someone who loves the movies of 1939, 1950, 1969, you know, the 70s. I love all these years, I think, but for our particular generation, this was a kind of real peak moment. Um, and I think it's like, so people have, people get very saying nice things about the book. I think they're also saying like, I, I'm just glad that they're just glad someone, you know, tr- took these movies seriously. Cause I do think we, if you're Gen X, you've grown up under this whole kind of, you guys got here too late. Like the seventies was the best decade oh, and your eighties sucked. And I agree. I'm, I'm becoming more and more like, I think the eighties, someone grew up in the eighties more and more. I'm like, a lot of these eighties movies, guys, come on. <laughs> these do kind of suck. Um, there's a lot of good ones too, but like, I definitely feel like, you know, there is a, there is, a, it, this is the last couple of years we've seen people who are in the, in that kind of Gen X sphere starting to really claim their landmark moments in culture, which I think is cool. My hope is that Gen X also, uh, does not become the shove, we're going to shove our history down every young person's throat the yeah. way the boomers do, because I really resent that still. Oh, so do I. Uh, that I've, this keeps coming up on my show where I keep talking to people about the big chill 
And like people from my generation who really like it, I go, what the fuck do you like about this movie? With all this boomer. I like love the I... big two. I Dude. like the big, it's like watching my parents, cause it's watching my parents' generation. Sure. And that's interesting to me. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll, mean, give, I'll give you that, but sometimes like the, the, the boomer hagiography about it is just a little bit suffocating to me. And, sure. And, it's, it, it, but I will all, we're all going to do, the thing is we're all going to do that. I mean, I think just the problem is the boomers had their hand, their lever, their hands on <clears throat> every lever of media. Yeah. For like 25 years. And it's like, you know, we, we had to really come up with like this. We, the whole problem with the boomer nostalgia, it's like it basically added up to in the sixties, we solved every problem in the world. And now, <laughs> and then, and then in the eighties, we got rich. And it's like, they just kind of always seem to not about that shit. It's like, and then you get older and you're like, wait a minute, you guys didn't solve that much of this. Why are you guys always talking about the sixties? It's like yeah. women were treated terribly. You guys didn't solve the civil rights issue. It's like, it's like, what are you guys going off about? There was lots also of the door. The doors suck. The doors are a <laughs> terrible band. Why are you pushing the doors on? That said, there is a Doors song in the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and it's one of the three Doors songs I still like. And I was like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to rethink the Doors at this point. Maybe PTA has forced me to do that. Ah, uh, you don't have to. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to your point about movies of the '80s, uh, which is really funny to me. There's another critic who I've had on this show who I really like, and he does he does a lot of deep dives on. Uh, he has a column on Stereo Gum called the the Number Ones. Where oh yeah, Tom Bri- uh Tom Bryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I read that. it's good stuff. Yeah, Tom Bryan is uh he's another one of my favorites. And so I had him on the show. He was in the middle of doing his column on the A V Club called The Popcorn Champs, where mm. he talked about every number one movie of the year starting in like nineteen sixty. Mm. And what at the time I interviewed him, I was eagerly awaiting the entry for nineteen eighty seven. Do you remember what the number one movie of nineteen eighty seven was? It's a real uh wasn't the Untouchables? It wasn't the wasn't the Eddie wasn't oh, it wasn't the Golden Child? What was it? It is saying really weird. Uh, it's three men and a baby. Oh, it's right. It's the big Touchstone uh, yeah. era. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you you kind of look at that and you go, man, how was this like lame sitcom horse shit? Number one in 1987. But what he what he kind of came to talking about that movie and Fatal Attraction together, were boomers were really working some shit out, man. Like in terms of becoming oh, yeah. parents. And so that's one thing I love about this this book is you're putting this era through a number of lenses in terms of filmmaking, in terms of culture, like a lot of things coalescing all at the same time. Are there any movies from 1999 that just barely missed the cut, like getting their own sort of special entry? Because you allude to other movies, but, you know, obviously you couldn't write about every single one. No, I had to cut and it kind of pained me. I had to cut. I had a lot about the straight story, uh, the David Lynch movie, and it just didn't quite fit. I love that movie. It's beautiful. It's very, it's really made by Touchstone. I think, I think it was a Disney distributed here. Um, you know, David Lynch making a, a kind of strange in its own way, but really moving story about this guy getting out of here, traveling across country. Um, and I just had to cut that and it just, I couldn't fit, I couldn't fit in the book. And I also, I've talked about this on the podcast, but like I have a deep, 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 completely non-ironic love of Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> and, you know, I was going to talk to Renny Harlan at one point, but he was in China. But it's also hard for me to write about Deep Blue Sea in the context of 1999 because you a lot of the movies that I focus on in the book are movies like Fight Club or Election or Three Kings that are dealing with kind of all these sort of swirling social, cultural, political issues in the 90s that kind of came out through these movies. Um, and it's hard for me to look at Deep Blue Sea and be like, huh, what was Deep Blue Sea telling about the nineties? I'm like, I think it was telling us that shark movies can still be awesome. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not quite the same as Three Kings where you're like re-examining America's role in the over- overseas. It's like, yeah, Deep Blue Sea is a great fucking movie if you want to watch Jack- uh, Samuel Jackson get snapped in half, but it was harder to make a bigger kind of 
argument for it in the context of this book. Well, I'll tell you what. Probably the best and worst time to really enjoy Chappelle's show is when you're on a college campus, which I mm. was. And Deep Blue Sea led to one of the best lines in that show, and it's Dave Chappelle as Samuel L. Jackson doing Sam Jackson uh, uh, beer. Sam Adams, the yeah. Sam Jackson beer. A shark ate me. A fucking shark yeah. ate me. A motherfucking me. shark ate me. It's very, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, I, I know that sketch very well. That was, yeah, that was peak, peak Chappelle for me at least. Yeah. Um, no, I love that movie. Weirdly, because like, I've been on podcasts just to talk about that movie, which is kind of hilarious. Because it was like, it was just in that year of all these really fun, great, you know, it's like, that's the thing. It's like, when we're talking about 1999, it's like, it is, it is really interesting and important to talk about stuff like Fight Club and The Matrix that had these big ideas. But also yeah. like, the studios were just making really fun, unpredictable, weird, popcorn movies like that as long as they came out and made like 60 million bucks everyone's happy because you can just make another 30 bucks on you know 20 million bucks on home video and you don't need to have an ip you don't need to have a franchise yeah. to worry about you can do it under budget or on budget and you got some, like there's a really one of the one of the best movies 1999 in terms of like a movie that doesn't quite work but is really fun is this movie called ravenous which is like this hmm. vampire western kind of in a way and like it's the, the movie itself does not entirely work but it's like it's got Guy Pierce. It's got an amazing score by Damon Albert. And it's like a movie like that. You just never see anymore. You don't see like weird kind of strange kind of horror movie drama misfires. And that year kind of had everything. Even the stuff that didn't work that year was pretty fun. I agreed. And what the very first DVD I ever bought was go. And so oh, yeah. <laughs> like li yeah. literally, I remember that because my friends all had DVDs. I had this huge VHS collection. I was like a member of Columbia House and actually like I was one of the few people who actually did it and didn't rip them off by it. Right. <laughs> like I actually bought the movies that I was supposed to buy and then I'd like start again and I'd get, you know, the seven free ones and then over the next three years, whatever. Right. But Go is one of those like really cool movies that the studios don't make so much anymore because Go is like this quirky, weird little movie. It's, it's not every movie where two gay soap opera actors end up getting busted by cops for, you know, for ecstasy. And then those right. cops try and sell them Amway, right? Like, right. <laughs> that, that, well, I mean, essentially Amway, but like that kind of thing just doesn't happen anymore. The economics of movies are much different. And I, I promise this is leading to a question. I'm one of the podcasts at Denver Film Fest, and I know that there are movies that exist, like the ones you're describing, still out there, but they don't get wide distribution. They're not part of the studio system anymore. Like, uh, I interviewed a guy named Noah Hutton, who is the son of Timothy Hutton, and he made this quirky little, like, sci-fi movie called Lapsus that mm. is, sort of has subtle and overt nods to, like, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I saw this, and I picked up on it immediately, and I go, man, this would be one of those really cool movies that exists in the 90s. So, like, they're out there, but fucking no one sees them, and that frustrates me. What's your take on sort of the studio system and mainstream movies in 2021? Well, I mean, the thing is, I would probably push back a little because when you mentioned Go, there's a movie that came out this year that I loved that reminded me of Go. And it's one of my, it's, every time I talk, when someone asks me, my, what are your favorite movies of the year? This one keeps just, this movie called Zola, which came out, I think A24 put it out. And to me, I was that's like, that's one of those, that's one of those studios though, that's like doing really, really cool work. That's, that's kind of quirky. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they do some cool stuff, but you know, the weird thing is, like, this year, I've, I, I'm trying to, like, think of my top ten list for this year, and I think, you know, certainly a, an indie can't, a, even a really well-made indie, unless it's, like, an A24 thing, can't push through the culture anymore. I mean, movie, it, movies, it's hard for anything to push through at this point. It's too diffuse. Pop culture is, yeah, 
And that's that's fine. The thing is, like, I think it requires a little more, like, hunting and pecking. Because, like, the three three of the best movies I saw this year were all indies, one of which, only one of which I saw in the theaters. Zola, a movie called Shiva Baby, and a movie called The Killing of Two Lovers. They're all, like, phenomenally good indie movies. And if they had come out in 1995 or 2005, each of them would have made, like, 10 to $15 million. They would have had that two-page EW feature on the lead star, I mean, there's still, like, an amazingly great, there's still a really vibrant American indie movement. The problem is half these movies go on VOD with no promotion. They don't get the kind of, they get a little bit of critical support, but it's really hard for them to um, to break out. And But you have to figure out, like, at this point, well, what's what's more important, that uh, that these movies do well or that I get, that these movies are still being made? Because I'm just yeah. grateful. When I see a really good indie, like Shiva Baby, I was like, Shiva Baby and Zola are two movies that, as soon as I saw them, I'm like, I cannot wait to see what these people make for the next five, ten years. Like it was like they're they're the first or second movie of the respected filmmakers. They have an amazing energy. They're fun. They're fucked up. They're really smart. <laughs> um, they're great. And I, but I would also say a lot of that '90s indie spirit is now just on TV. I don't yeah. know if you've seen Reservation Dogs. The Reservation Dogs to me yeah. is like this is this is like everything I loved about '90s indie movies. To me, it feels like a weird, great Miramax goofball smart moving teen comedy that stretches out over what eight eight nine hours or whatever or whatever however long it is rather than two hours and as long as that's still there somewhere i'm i'm happy for it. I, I i wish things i wish we were still in an era where a movie like three kings was made and the studio backed it and entertainment gets on the cover and time magazine did a feature on it and it made 50 million dollars because had a big star it's just the, the, those kind of movies are not going to be made on a big way to studio level ever again you know it's funny i fell into a trap that i complain about all the time in terms of music because as we get older, you'll hear people say, man, like, there's not music that, you know, they don't make music now like they did back then. And it's like, yes, they fucking do. All you have to do is oh, yeah. find it. Like, it's, yes. a, it's out yeah. there. There's, there's still great punk rock being made in 2021. There's still great rock music. Rock doesn't occupy the place culturally that it once did. And on some levels, like, that's okay. Things can evolve. Like, and, and younger generations should have their own shit. Yeah. Um, but you just have to find it. So I kind of fell into my own trap there. I guess sometimes it's, well, just it's, a, it's, a, a, it's a byproduct of laziness, but it's also there's just so much out there. Well, it's also like it's funny because this is I, I was on a plane last night and I never get into conversations on planes because I just I'm always either working or I'm like, this is my please, sir. This is my three hours to read or listen to music <laughs> without having children to deal with. But it was a guy who saw me reading about a movie or writing about it. And he was starts. He was like, yeah, you know. And he was like, it's everything now. It's like, he was my age. Like, music isn't the same. There's no one makes good songs anymore. They just want to get streamed on Spotify. And like, you know, everything's just Marvel. And I'm just like, I get it. But like, you got to do some work. Like, it's <laughs> like, I, I mean, and I don't, but I also understand, like, it used to be a lot more. It was a lot easier in the nineties when it's like, everyone's like, what the hell is Pulp Fiction? It's on the cover of this magazine. Everyone's talking about it. You don't have that anymore. And with music, it's the same thing. I, st I think actually this has been a pretty amazing year for pop music, but like, if you don't like yeah. pop music, like, I could, if someone gave me a huge amount of money tomorrow, like, if someone gave me $10 million tomorrow, I would stupidly spend $200,000 on band camp tomorrow. It's like, just like finding bands. It's just like, <laughs> you got, that to me is still part of the fun. I used to read zines in the 90s and order records or like order a seven inch, but I was like, that band name is cool. <laughs> so like, that cover is cool. And I think, I think, you know, for pop culture and movies uh, uh, and music, it's just, you have to sort of, you kind of have to be willing to kind of dig in and look around and see what's out there. And you need a really good network of people who are like, uh, you know, have you seen this? Have you heard this? Like, and that's yeah. what I have. Like half my texts to my friends are like, 
I just rewatched this. Have you heard this record? And it's just kind of the way it's always been. Yeah, I, I have a similar group uh, where we keep finding stuff and we send it to each other. And it's like, man, this is great. Like, it, it reminds yeah. me of, like, old record store culture where yeah. you'd go in and you're looking for something. It's like, hey, uh, you're buying this. Have you heard these guys? Or have you heard this woman? Uh, like, because it's not the same, but I think there's a red thread in there that you can pull on and be like, oh, I'm going to like this and it's going to push me in a new direction. Which, yeah, having friends like that is just super, super important. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very much with you. I remember looking in the back or like, I, I would get like inserts when I'd buy a band from like Fat Records or Epitaph Records or something. And you just kind of look at the album covers and it's like, yeah, I'm going to take a shot at that one. And it's so funny to think about how we have all of this at our fingertips now. It's almost made us ungrateful for it culturally. Yeah, I I, I, I I try to push myself if I, if I get that way, if I'm just kind of like, yeah, like I'm like, wait a minute. It's like if I was 15, you said, first of all, you're going to be able to walk around with music <laughs> in your ears at all times without having to like stop and pull a CD out and change it. I'd be amazed. But yeah, the idea of like, I can, you can listen, I can listen to anything around the world. It's saying, you know, I can watch anything I want. You know, there is a lot of real despair about the lack of good movies on streaming. And I'm like, I get it, but also like, I feel like my 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 TV because it's hooked up to the internet is the absolute biggest international video store of all uh, ever. It's like I can watch anything. I can. I was on vacation Friday. I had a night to myself. I was like, I want to watch a movie. I got a someone on a sub. This, this guy Max Reed, who has a Substack, recommended this movie. I'd never heard of it. It was on movie. It's called Azor. It's great. And I was like, within five minutes, I had it on. Like it's just like I can just watch it. And I, would I have rather seen the theater? Sure, but realistically. You know, the access right now is kind of amazing. And I would love to see more, I'd love to see more preservation. I'd love to see more older movies making sure they're taken care of and distributed. And they will be. And I just like, I have, to me, I'm like, I got nothing to complain about. Like, I never sit down and be like, I'd love to watch. Like, <laughs> I have, I have enough to last for the next 10 years. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I got plenty to catch up on. The book I read immediately after yours, and this, ju- this was just happenstance, but it's a book called, uh, Sellout by Dan Ozzie. I'm reading it right now. That's so funny. I just finished. I just finished the. Uh, what the I'm reading the Distillers chapter, which is, it's it's a good book. It's one of those books where books where I'm like, I'm not super interested in like two or three of the bands, but I read the chapters all the way through. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Me too. Like it's it's a great book. I like I had to stop myself from reading the Rise Against chapter because like I wanted to skip ahead to that because I wrote my master's thesis about Rise Against and about oh, wow. about that album in particular. So I'm like. Oh man, this is going to be good. And he like, he captured it really, really well. It was, it's a terrific book. And so reading yours and then reading his, I, I'm like back in a place that I love to be, right? Because that, that was, that was the moment I, like I said, I turned 18 in 1999. I was 18 mm. years old for Y2K. And so it's funny because we're to the point now, I'm 40 years old. I turned 40 this year. The stuff that I like or the stuff that I sort of grew up liking has now become nostalgic. And that is a mm. weird, weird feeling for me. You are a cultural writer. You're doing, I mean, you write about current things, but you also have a number of oral histories. Is that strange for you to reckon with? Because I, I want to get into Gene and Roger next, but is it is it tough for you, like, as you're considering a new project, like, I should do something new or should I dig back into this? Because the time is now, like, it's ripe to start talking mm. about Gen X stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's almost actually a little bit too saturated in some ways. And I'm, I'm very much like, you know, I, most of the culture I take in is new stuff. Like I listen, like I said, I go, I watch 
as many new movies as I can a year. I listen to lots of new music, like really stuff on Bandcamp or like Spotify. Yeah. I do like to keep up on modern culture. I'm less interested. You know, 15 years ago when I was writing for Spin and Blender and I was doing, you know, cover stories on bands, like they had new albums out. I did, you know, it's like at a certain point, the present is only so interesting because the thing is like for me, when I want to write a story or a book, it's like, it's because I have questions that yeah. I want to answer. And it's like, to me, I don't have a whole lot of questions about the making of Dune because there's 8 million people writing about it. I can find <laughs> that out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's because of people doing the work. I, whereas I feel like writing about the past and history is more interesting to me right now, not because I want to live in the past or because I think the nineties were the greatest or the eighties were the greatest. I have a lot of problems with those decades. I have a lot of problems, like I said, with the way Gen X falls into nostalgia traps. But yeah. when you look back at history, my father was a, was a history major. He loved history. And I, it's only in my 40s when I started to appreciate the idea of looking back at eras in which you were a part of what was going on but didn't realize, learning more about that period and kind of contextualizing what was happening in 1999 that made these movies more impactful. What was going on in the 80s that made, you know, Siskel and Ebert as film critics so influential. And that, that for me is really fun because I'm actually learning stuff about a history that I was there for. Um, but I also like, there's definitely times where I'm like, I wish I could go just, ha- I mean, do what I did when I was 25 or 30. I was like, I wish I could go hang out with some new band for three days on the road because that's fun. <laughs> and there's a lot of, I think spending a week on the road with like a hundred Gex or Lil Nas X would be super fun. I don't think anyone would want to see a 46 year old dude doing, doing that at this <laughs> right. point because I would be the oldest person, but I'm like, I am very excited by the culture of now, but more as a um, uh, consumer. I'm I, the culture of the past. I am kind of interested in writing about, like just sort of figuring it out. But yeah, I mean, look, and, and you'll find you just you're 40 now. One thing that is really fun about your 40s as a pop culture fan, it's the best decade in your life because there's still new stuff going on. You're still excited. However, you start getting so old that you forget some of the stuff you love, and you put on old movie like, oh, I forgot about, like I forgot about this. So you can almost start rediscovering. <laughs> like the stuff you love when you were a teenager because you're just becoming an old fart and you're like, wait a minute, how does uh how does the talented Mr. Ripley book end again? Like you're just like stuff you read when you're 19. You're like, oh, I can rediscover stuff, you know? Um, so I, I, it's, it's, I'm always very happy to keep one foot in the present and one foot in the past, basically. Absolutely. I, I think that's a good way of looking at it too because I, I'm big on rewatching movies and sorry about the sun here. I'm having delay. That's okay. It's, it's, it, it's this time of year only. Um, I, I have windows up here where they just come through, and it's... For, for people who can't see, if you've ever seen Superman 2, when they have Zod and the villains <laughs> trapped in those weird Krypton glasses, like... Like in the mirror? Glass, yes, that's kind of what it looks like. <laughs> or or it looks like you're in the presence of God. I can't tell. It depends on where it depends the light I suppose there's an argument to be made. We're all in the presence of God, depending on your yeah. religious persuasion. Sure, sure. But... Zod, Zod or God? <laughs> 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 so, I, as I expressed to you, like, my love for cultural criticism, uh, and, and like movie criticism, just, it runs very, very deep, and it's, it's mm. what I'm reading constantly. So, on The Ringer, when you, when your Gene and Roger podcast project was announced, I remember going, holy shit, okay, an eight episode podcast series about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, I'm there mm. for it. Thank God. <laughs> like, and so, like, early on in that, you described how much you loved watching them on their show my problem was i never knew when they were on in my local market (laughs) because it it just seemed like it was inconsistent so i was more often on vacation when i would catch them because they'd be on like Mm. some sunday afternoon or something but i know you've covered this in the podcast but take me through first of all your love of gene and roger and then secondly how did this uh podcast come to be 
Yeah, I mean, those are my guys. Like, I, I grew up, you know, both my parents, especially my mom, who's still with me, is still with us, like, big, big movie fans. So, like, we had, in my house, we just had tons of books. And I have some here in my house now in California. Like, there's a book over here called The New York Times at the Movies, which was a book that came out in, like, 78, 79, that collects basically, like, 100 classic movie reviews from The New York Times. I read that when I was, like, six. I'm reading about, like, <laughs> I don't know, all that jazz or something. Like, I remember, you know, I would read, I would read the review of Jaws a million times because I was scared of it. So... Um, I just had movie books and old movies on and Siskel and Eber were for me, um, they were my entry point into not only sort of understanding how important movies were, but also like how to talk to people about things you liked or didn't like without being a complete jerk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> totally. And so for me, they were, um, I don't know when they were on in Philadelphia outside of, you know, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. All I know is that I watched them. If I, my whole deal with my parents was like, if I was good in church on Sunday mornings, when I came back, I would watch Saturday Night Live taped from the night before and Cisco Niebuhr taped from whatever. So that was like, I still remember like sitting in my church clothes on the floor of the TV, watching them review like Robocop. Like it was, yeah. you know, it's a very, it was, it was my weekly thing, you know, um, and then watching, you know, John Lovitz do something on Saturday Night Live from that era. You know, and as I got older, I, you know, I, I was lucky. I had a couple of email exchanges with Roger Ebert. It was amazing when I was like 23, 24. He would write me back about nothing important at all. Like just like stuff I was helping him with for Entertainment Weekly. Um, I, I've heard and, he's always been cool like that because the guy who founded Deadspin was a guy named Will Leach. Yeah. And he wrote, he even I wrote a, Will. yeah, you, oh, do you know Will personally? I, I, I met him a couple times in New York. He's a really good guy. Yeah. yeah. I, I haven't seen him in years, but yeah, I was like, him. my parents grew up in Chicago. He is uh, a rotten Cardinals fan, but, um, <laughs> I try not to hold that against him, but he talked about, he even wrote a nasty gram to Roger Ebert one time just mm. because, you know, this sort of misplaced hubris when you're young and you're, sure. you know, you're trying to make a, a point, but Ebert even wrote him back. <laughs> and, and then Will tells the story about he wrote an apology letter. And Ebert wrote him back again. And so I've always heard Roger was just very, very giving with people like that. And that, like, what a cool thing to do. Yeah, he was online all the time, too. At one point when I was researching the podcast, I just wound up going down uh, a Usenet hole. Usenet, for people who are really young, was, like, basically kind of the pre, pre-message board way of communicating. And, like, there was, like, a, there people were arguing about some Cisco and Ebert review in 1995. And, and Cisco, and, and, and Roger Ebert, like, chimes in, chimes in like... <laughs> You know, he was on CompuServe all the time, or Prodigy. I can't remember what his big thing was. I but. think it was CompuServe. I think you said CompuServe in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And, you know, he he seemed very accessible. And I think what was interesting to me, and the reason I wanted to do this, I first wanted to do it as a book, and then I had this, this great editor of Simon & Schuster. We talked about it, and we had like a three-hour, two-hour dinner. And at the end, I was like, how do you do this as a book? Because you, you, you want to hear them debate. You can't, like, yeah. transcribe their debate. Maybe someone will do a great book on it. Maybe I'll write a book on it some point. I have no idea, but, like, at that point, it's like, to me, it was like the energy in their back and forths. I don't know how you capture that in a book. So then I, you know, I pictured the ring as a podcast and they were great, but I was also, as much as I loved Roger Ebert growing up and had all these books, I still have all those books here. I also realized how little I knew about Gene Siskel and I really liked, I thought Gene Siskel was really cool. Like I always like yeah. kind of like, you know, he was smart and funny and he had really good kind of one-liners and he had really interesting, particular, incredibly hard to predict movie taste yes he did you know <laughs> i remember he did. that he, he did and he and but you know he also um he was just great on tv and so i was like I, and i was that's kind of why i wanted to do the podcast i was like i'm fascinated by these two guys i don't know much about 
about, I don't know anything at all, barely about Gene. And I know a lot about Roger, but I would like to know more. And I just felt that's one of those things where it's like, I had a lot of questions and that's what usually leads me to do anything. But also I feel like their impact is still kind of, I think they are very important people our age. I also think it delights me when I go on like the movie subreddit and there's like a couple of people who are clearly very, very young who are like, here's Cisco Niebert's review of Apocalypse Now. I'm 14. I just discovered the movie Apocalypse Now. <laughs> By the way, the greatest movie of all time is, and it's like always like, is, you know, The Hangover. But I like the Apocalypse. You can tell they're <laughs> right. very, very young. Like they're very, very young. <laughs> and I like the fact there is still that these old clips because of YouTube, which is now, I, I'm glad that there's Cisco Niebert is still kind of circulating out there for young movie fans. Me too. I remember I was working at a PR firm. It was uh, right during the Great Recession, so like 2008, 2009, and all of our billable hours were going way downhill, so I had a lot of downtime. And yeah. I found myself just devouring Roger Ebert's back catalog. Because, oh, yeah. Because online, if you go to RogerEbert.com, you can type in like any movie, and I was just thinking of any movie I'd ever seen because I wanted his take on it, and even movies I yeah. hadn't. The funniest story about that is uh, we had gotten subscribed to Showtime for some reason, and the movie North was on. And, <laughs> and so I had it on in the background, and I'm like, wow, this movie really sucks. And uh, I go online, and I read Ebert's review of it, and it's one of the most scathing reviews you will ever, ever read. Of it's anything. infamous. It's it's one of his top ten most famous reviews, I think, yeah. Yeah, and so as a result of being so tickled by that review, I ended up watching North again, which was... <laughs> Just because I'm like, I gotta get the full flavor here. I gotta watch this through Roger Ebert's eyes. Yeah. And it, it, like, I think that's the only time I've ever done that where I willfully watched a movie that I disliked. Right. A, a second time, but it was because Roger Ebert's review was so amusing to me. And the way that he just took apart that movie was perfect. Now, when you talk about doing this as a podcast, you're right. It's, it, that's a much better vehicle for the story you're trying to tell. And there were things in there that, First of all, I remembered when Gene Siskel changed his review of Broken Arrow because... <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's me, one of my favorite Gene moments. It's so great. Me too. And like that had to be just pride swallowing for him. And also because I had a Broken Arrow poster on my bedroom wall. Like, I, I don't know why. It sat along this... You know, when you're, when you're a teenager, you don't really know what the hell you're doing. And so I had these posters, and like in order, it was something like Demon Knight, gr mm -hmm. Grumpy Your Old Men... Broken Arrow and Rumble in the Bronx. Hey, that's look. Those are, I I've I worked at Vista in Vista those years. I probably have those posters in my parents' attic right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there were times in the podcast where I'm listening and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. I I I don't think I'd ever heard that story about Justin Lin and Better Luck Tomorrow, mm, uh, where, yeah. where Roger Ebert stands up in the theater and starts shouting at that guy who's giving Justin Lin shit. For the way yeah. he, he made his movie. And I thought, man, that is so cool. Were there moments when you were making this that even... I'm sure there were plenty that you didn't know, but any that really stood out where you learned something new about Gene and Roger? Uh, I mean, for me, I learned a lot about Gene. I mean, it's certainly like, you know, Gene... And there's a lot of stuff that didn't make the show, but, like, just there's stuff about Gene. Like, one thing I, I love is that he was very into, like... He, he, he loved kind of, like... Not, I don't want to say gambling, but he did love betting and he loved kind of like, I think he's someone who might strike some people as a show off. But what I think he really was, was that he loved sharing information with people. Like there was a great story that didn't make the show about how his assistant, he was like, look, I'm going to, I, I, I guarantee you Starbucks is going to be big in a couple of years. I'm going to buy you some stock in Starbucks <laughs> as a wedding gift. Like 
in Starbucks. And it's like, I think he loved just the, the gamemanship of life in a way, which I thought was really cool. I, and I, you know, I, um, I certainly sort of feel like I learned a lot more about their dynamic. Cause when I was a kid and I was watching them, I'm like, these two grownups hate one another and they're going to fight about die hard, you know? And it was like very right. exciting, but doing this in my forties, which is the age in which those guys were really kind of at their peak powers and, and realizing that, you know, grown up professional relationships are very nuanced and tough and you cannot, you absolutely cannot spend 25 years or so working with someone if you truly hate them. Yeah. I don't think they were, the thing is like, you know, when I would tell people I was doing this podcast, they'd be like, Ooh, are you going to find out they really hated one another? Like that was, it's, but here's the thing, like, the only person who really can explain Gene and Roger's relationship are no longer with us. And I don't yeah. think any relationship that lasts 25 years can honestly be really explained anyway. You have to be the first partner. In it. And I was very grateful that, you know, uh, Marlene Siskel and Chaz Eber talked to me because that's about as close as you can get to it. But I do think there was a lot of genuine affection and sure, absolute frustration and pettiness, but it's a 25 year relationship between two famous people who were also competitors. And I think for me, it's like, you know, I think, I think people want an easy answer like, oh, no, they were best friends or, oh, no, they hate each other. And the answer is we kind of won't ever really know, but it, it definitely was not one of those two very simplistic things. No, it's kind of like the relationship, if you've ever read about Penn and Teller. Those guys understand each other on a level when they're creating their show and when they're working. They don't really hang out outside of that. Yeah. And so, like, you're right. Grown-up relationships are nuanced and they're challenging and they're they're not easily summed up. And I think about that yeah. in terms of one of my best friends in the entire world uh, is a guy I went to grad school with. His name is Kyle. And I don't know that we've ever agreed on a pop culture text ever. And <laughs> so it, it leads to a lot of fertile sort of earth, uh, for us. And, and if you enjoy that, if you enjoy the banter, you alluded to a friend that you have that's sort of like that. Uh, oh yeah. On the show. And so if you ask anyone who's kind of in our social circle, about Dakota Fanning, they go, we're not talking about Dakota Fanning again, because <laughs> Kyle and I had sort of a legendary argument that went for weeks about her, and I can't even remember why. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you go, people are kind of uncomfortable watching us because it seems more contentious than it actually is. But that's part of the fun for us, man. Like, if, if you're into cultural criticism or like analyzing a cultural moment, you're going to have disagreements, and if you don't enjoy that process, yeah, it's going to look pretty alien. And that's kind of what you get from Gene and Roger, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a very reductive, you know, I think one problem, not the main problem with the Internet, is like, you know, I think it is great now the Internet has really made it possible for everyone to kind of chime in and to hear from new voices and to see smaller things get championed and see big things get rethought. But I do think there is like, a you don't you don't feel the way I do about this so fuck you kind of attitude yeah. sometimes especially on Twitter about movies and I think I I don't go on Letterbox I, do, I mean I I I keep stuff on Letterbox I don't write on Letterbox I don't really tweet out movie things anymore because it's just like I don't have the time to kind of like get into it with people I I don't know or don't know that well yeah that said if I go to a dinner party or I go to some and like I meet someone new I love talking about movies and and I and I think the Cisco Ebert taught me a way of discussing or debating something that you don't see the same way in a way that's kind of civil, but can also be fun. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, uh, I went to, uh, I was away this weekend and met, I was with like eight people I never met before. And the first night of dinner, we started talking about movies and I, and you know, it's fun to do that, especially if you don't agree and be like, wait, what? Oh, come on. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah. you're crazy. I'm like, I love that. I did not like that. What did you see in it? You know, and I think that's kind of what's fun about conversations about culture in general. I think online, they really have, you can still have really interesting, thoughtful conversations. And I think 
you know, Letterboxd is, is a really fun place to sort of see a lot of interesting write-ups about movies and get a sense of how people feel. But I just think there's something about the in-person, one-on-one, on the phone, or on a podcast kind of yeah. conversation, which is what everyone does now. And Siskel and Ebert really kind of showed how to do this. Yeah, 100% agree. Well, I'll tell you, listening to that podcast, so in addition to this show, I produced six others. Your show filled me with just an insane level, but healthy, of professional jealousy. Uh, um, just because as I'm, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, this is, I, I could not do a better job with this. I, I think that story as it was told was just phenomenal. And, and I love the way you structured it. I love the way you put it together. Each episode kind of beckoned the next one. I'm curious. Well, it's, it's very, it's very kind of you, but I asked this point, like, I had a very, people at the ringer were fantastic. Like, it was definitely, that was my first podcast and it's like, we, they helped me immensely on the, the narrative and the technical elements and everything. So I, I truly, uh, it is, this, thank you very much, but it was definitely like, I'm, I'm very happy to collaborate with people when it turns out that well. Oh, no, absolutely. Good team. Good team. Absolutely. And so listening to it and, and you acknowledge all those people at the end of each episode, which, which is always really, really good. Was there any hesitancy from either Marlene or Chaz to talk about this? Like it, was it painful for them or would, was it kind of cathartic? Like, no, no, you should tell this story. I mean, I can't speak for them. I know it took, you know, it, the, the the weird thing was I was trying to do this during the pandemic and really at the height of like the early months of the pandemic when everything felt really kind of unsteady. So it took some time just to kind of get them on the phone to talk about it. But I don't know whether that was because they were kind of nervous about it or, or, or whether it was just honestly, it was such a crazy time in everyone's lives and who wants, who wants to get on the phone and talk about, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but they were both very open in a lot of ways. I think they both also, you know, I know they've been approached in the past to do something like that. Um, and for whatever reason, it hasn't worked out. And, you know, obviously Steve James did a really great documentary on Roger. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I, I do think that stuff is probably hard to talk about, but I think also like th- they understand that there is a legacy and that Gene and Roger were, you know, I think they both are very happy to see Gene and Roger's place in the culture being kind of discussed and being acknowledged. Like who wouldn't, you know, and I'm sure it was painful for them because they're, they're two guys who died younger than they should have, you know, yeah. and it's tragic. And Gene's death especially is very hard. I mean, he had young kids and I mean, they're both, both deaths are really hard, but like Gene did die very young and, uh, it was, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's very tough. His, I could, I mean, you know, his daughter spoke to me and that was great. I wasn't expecting that, you know, and I, yeah. I think there was, by then there was a level of trust. And I, you know, that's really, really, that's hard to do is to get on a, podcast that's going to get a big audience and talk about your father who's passed away. So I'm really grateful for them for doing that. But look, I, I don't know if they had back and forth about it. I don't know what their reservations were, but I am very grateful that it kind of wound up the way it did. But I also, if they had said at any point, I don't want to talk about this, I totally would have understood. You know, yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it unless they were both involved. There was just no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine doing like the equivalent of a, of a write around. I, I just felt like you needed to talk to them. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. Um, one of the books I also read this year, I finished Life Itself by Roger Ebert. Oh yeah. Which is, uh, is incredible. And his, the, the vividness and the richness with, with which he describes these places that I'll never go are amazing. But I, I pulled one quote out of there and I'm going to, I'm just going to read it. What's sad about not eating is the experience, whether at a family reunion or at midnight by yourself in a greasy spoon under the L tracks. The loss mm-hmm. of dining, not the loss of food. Unless I'm alone, it doesn't involve dinner if it doesn't involve talking. The food and drink I can do without easily. The jokes, gossip, laughs, arguments, and memories I miss. I ran in crowds where anyone was likely to start reciting poetry on a moment's notice. Me too, but not anymore. So yes, it's sad, 
Maybe that's why writing has become so important to me. You don't realize it, but we're at dinner right now. Mm. I wrote that down and I look at it probably once every couple of weeks because it reminds me of why I do this show. Because this is like dinner for Roger Ebert. Mm. You know what I mean? Like us having Mm -hmm. this kind of conversation and it just, it thrills me to that end. And so, uh, the fact that we got to connect here means a lot to me. Thanks for having a Roger Ebert dinner with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, That's a lovely quote. I, I haven't read that book since it came out. Um, well, I reread parts of it when I was researching, but I, 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 I uh, that's a great line. Yeah, 100%. This is the time on the show when we do plugs. So, Brian, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Anything you want to plug, do it now. The podcast is called Gene and Roger. It's part of the Ringer Network. It's part of uh, the Big Picture Show. If you go on Spotify or if you go on iTunes or wherever your podcast and put in Gene Ampersand Roger, it will... It will come up. Um, the book's called Best Movie Year Ever on 1999. Big screen. That's out. You go to the library. You'll buy it. But yeah, I don't, I'm okay. You, you, if you want to buy it, great. Um, I'll get four cents or something. I have no idea how that all works. But, um, Congrats. And then if you want to see the least maintained Twitter, I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I just, I, I just, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have time anymore. I read it, yeah. but I just don't have time to throw stuff out there. I, I wish I had more time for, for that and for other various online culture hubs, but, uh, yeah. Well, so that's it, all I got the plug right now. In a Marie Kondo sense, Twitter stopped bringing me joy at one point. And so I, I decided to dial down my Twitter use quite a bit. So uh, I'm kind of with you on that front. I will have links to all of that in the companion blog piece. That's on johnofalltrades.us. Oh, cool. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. Also in the show notes. So if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods, You'll find it there. So, Brian Raptor. Can I plug one more thing real Yes, quick? please. Uh, just because um, I mentioned it, All Right, All Right, All Right is my friend Melissa's book about Daisy Confused. And it's like, it is absolutely one of the best oral histories I've read. I mean, I love that movie. Melissa's great. But I got to say, like, I was caught up in that book. It is so fucking good. So if if your audience of people really love 90s stuff and movie history like that, is that's probably my favorite movie book I've read all year. Fantastic. All right. Brian Raftery. Uh, this was an enormous pleasure. Uh, I adore your work, and I cannot wait to see what you do next. So continue hey, success to you, my man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, John. And that'll do it for episode 314 of the John of All Trades podcast with Brian Raftery. And what a guy. I could sit and chat with him for a month of Sundays. I just love talking pop culture, and he has a brilliant mind for writing about it. I adore his work. I cannot wait to see what he does next. Be sure to check out all his work any blog piece that's on johnofalltrades.us or on the podcatchers I plugged at the back end of that episode. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. In addition to all manner of professional communications, I can produce a podcast for you. In addition to this show, I produce six others and I can help your show get off the ground, get it going. I'll show run it for you. It'll be phenomenal. D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is Four Degrees. The number four D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. If you're running a campaign, promoting a product, selling a service, using social media marketing, online advertising, or email campaigns, 4Degrees can get your message in front of the people who need to see it most. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Check me out on social, J-O-A-T pod, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews are Facebook only. That's on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesday. As I mentioned, this is it for me this year. One special presentation coming at you next week. I hope you'll enjoy that as we prepare for Cobra Kai Season 4. Thank you for letting me be a part of your life. Take care of yourselves. 
take care of each other. I will see you back here in 2022. I adore you. Until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.